Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Duncan Ball is the best-selling author of 75 books of children's fiction, including the Selby and Emily Eyefinger series. He moved to Australia in 1974, was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and lived for some years in Anchorage, Alaska, and later in Madrid and Paris. He majored in mathematics and chemistry at university and then left his job in chemical research to write books. Duncan has been a full-time author and occasional scriptwriter since 1982. He and his wife, Jill, live in the inner western suburbs of Sydney. Duncan, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Now, you were editing children's stories at the school magazine at the Department of Education, I understand. How did you get into that? Because that's such a, you know, seminal magazine that's a part of every child's childhood. Um, how did you get into that and how did that influence you to then write books for children? Oh, it really was, well, first, just answering those in reverse, it was really my apprenticeship and that of a lot of other people in the children's book writing business here in Australia. Um, we learned our trade. It was sort of like, I guess, sort of like working at the ABC, you know, which everybody seemed to do before they go off to other stations. The, um, the school magazine has been, you know, a literary magazine for kids in New South Wales for... Well, I guess it went through a couple of name changes early on, but, you know, 100 years or so. And uh, I got a job there just, I mean, it was a complete fluke. Um, I had been working as an industrial chemist. My background is in mathematics and chemistry. I was interested in writing, had been for some years, and I'd written an adult novel. And the reason I knew about the school magazine was because I had two young sons in primary school and they used to bring it home. And then I found for some reason that they were looking for not an editor, but an assistant editor. And I did my homework. I kind of learned as much as I could about it, never thinking I had a chance of getting the job. Went for an interview, got it, and then the editor left and I applied for her job. How did you think that you got that after having a background in industrial chemistry? Well, I think part of it was the fact that I was a published author already. And I suspect, because I was there for four and a half years, and I then, you know, hired other people, and Anna Feenberg being one of them. And, you know, we had panels where we, you know, interviewed people and such. And one thing that struck me was how poorly prepared most of the interviewees were uh, I guess maybe there were people who sh showed up not thinking they had a chance of getting a job. You know, a lot of them were journalists who were probably trying lots of different things to make a living. Mm. And I think the thing I did right was I actually had got a lot of copies of the magazine and read it because not having grown up in Australia, I hadn't read it as a kid. Uh, I also put together a lot of thoughts on what I would like to do with the magazine um, if 
you know, I was given a chance to do so. Uh, most of which, once I got the job, they wouldn't let me do. <laughs> but I think that I think that actually helped the interview panel. Right. Um, and then when you got into it, did, is that when you started thinking, oh, right, maybe books for children? Yes. Um, I still really wanted to write for adults. Mm. Uh, my first book was an adult novel, and it was a kind of tongue-in-cheek thriller. And had that gone well, I'd have quite happily continued to do that sort of thing. This mm. was kind of back, I guess, probably just before Peter Cora started writing his detective series. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, that sort of thing, although not quite like Peter's work, um, would have suited me. But uh, it didn't do well. And I did think, oh, maybe I can write for kids, you know, and write for adults. And I was kind of hoping that the then editor of the school magazine, Lila Norman, who'd written some some children's books, would, you know, show me the ropes, basically. But then, you know, as soon as I got there, she announced that she was leaving. Mm -hmm. So, But it was, you know, we were all, the staff of the magazine had to read loads of children's books and write praises of them and adapt them for use in the magazine in a lot of cases. And it, it really did kind of force you to read things you wouldn't have wanted to, made you think about things you wouldn't have. Mm. It was just a very good education. Great training ground. It was. Now, one of your characters in your book series, Emily Eyefinger, was born with an eye at the end of her finger. It seems that in your books about Emily, she embraces her differences and uses her finger to solve mysteries and have adventures. What, where did that idea come from? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and what kind of feedback have you had about Emily? Because she's unusual. Well, the idea came from my wife, actually. Right. <laughs> what happened? Yes, yeah, she she's, was you know, born here in Australia, and she went to Coffs Harbour Primary School when she was a kid. And uh, she was talking to me once about her. Oh, we were talking about teachers and our various teachers, you know, mine primary school in Alaska and hers in Coffs Harbor. And she was talking about one teacher in particular who had lots of good ways to get the kids thinking. And one day the teacher said to the kids, "How would you? where would you like to have a third eye if you had three eyes instead of two? And, you know, a lot of the kids say, oh, my forehead or the top of my head or the back of my head. After which the teacher said, think of all the things you could do if you had an eye on the end of your finger. And I said, hey, you know, I think that would be a good idea for a character. So I wrote the first book. My my then editor didn't like it, so wouldn't publish it. But I just happened a few years afterwards. I was I was in New York. I'd been going back and forth to New York to try to sell U.S. rights to some of the books of mine published here. And uh, I was at Simon and & Schuster, and, and they were kind of looking through my books and saying, oh, yes, okay, okay. Do you have anything that hasn't been published? Because that's always more attractive to a publisher because they, they want world rights. And uh, I said, well, I've got this. And within a week, they'd rung me up and said, oh, we love the idea. Would you write uh, three more, and we'll put out four at the same time? Well, I'd never had a publisher asked me for more, you know, in fact, usually, even with my other books that turned into series, it's an, oh, no, no, don't write another one. Wait, let's see how this one goes. Right. And um, so I I actually talked them down to two more books because I didn't think I had enough ideas. Really? 
Yes, yes, I mean, it was silly. But, uh, I have to be one of the one of the first authors to talk a publisher out of, you know, down from, you know, three more books to two. And she has an eye at the end of her finger. I mean, the possibilities are endless, aren't they? Oh, yes, but, you know, if, if you, each, in each of the stories, and typically the books have, the books are short, and they have uh, six short stories in them usually. A couple of them have eight. But, uh, the idea of having a story that finally turns on Emily being able to solve some problem, you know, solve a mystery, get, you know, people out of some kind of danger by the use of the eye on the end of her finger, uh, the possibilities aren't limitless. <laughs> In <laughs> fact, <laughs> I, I do struggle to come up with them. And at the time, I'd sort of written the one book and then thought, oh, I, I think I can think up X number of more stories, but I don't know if I can exceed that. So in a way, it's good that I didn't write the other one because just before the books were published, and I did, Simon Schuster in New York did a wonderful job um, great illustrations, although I have to say when they were published here later, Craig Smith has done the illustrations, and I like his better. But they did, they had a good illustrator there. The editing process was very thorough. They were beautifully produced books. And then all of these people got the sack just before, just before the books were going to be published. The, uh, a new publisher came in and she kind of sacked them all and brought her mates over from another publishing house, sort of typical, mm. well, kind of more like the sort of thing that happens in Hollywood studios. So the the books, while they did get released, um, it was kind of a quiet release by people who hadn't been involved in them. And, right. and they look beautiful, but I can't say that they did terribly well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So you've written quite a few series of books, and you've written two books about the Piggots, who seem to be quite a mad family, except for 11-year-old Bert. Now, how did you come up with this family, and are they based on people you know? (laughs) Well, actually, I was inspired in this case by a series of books uh, by Helen Cresswell, the English author, about a family named the Bagthorpes, and she she wrote I can't remember how many books there are in the Bagthorpe saga, but you know it's let's say five of them, and I had read those while at the school magazine, and I sort of liked the idea of having, um, and I can't remember those books well enough. I just thought you know Mad Family is a good idea, mm. uh, and I like the idea of they're having, you know, a main character in this case Bert Piggott who's 11 years old, being the only sensible and sane member of the this, you know, family of ratbags. Mm-hmm. And all of the family who seem to get involved in every sort of scheme, and, and Bert is just powerless to stop them and try to kind of return some kind of sanity so that they don't lose their house or, you know, whatever it is. So really, the idea came... From, I don't want—I don't want to make this sound as though all my ideas come from other people and other <laughs> books, because most of them are just things that pop into my head. But in a few instances, uh, I have been inspired by something else, which was then the taking-off point. Mm. And so, if you started off in industrial chemistry, you know, you had a scientific background. At what point did you think I might now write a novel, or you know, I'll start writing? Was it something that you were always interested in? I was really interested from when I was about 11 or 12. I had 
um, in my primary school days, I was a very poor reader. I'm not sure why that is. I mean, I think some of us, you know, take to it very easily and quickly and others don't. Uh, whether it was because I kind of hung around with little boys, none of whom were from bookish homes and none of whom wrote and so uh, read, that is, mm. and I didn't either. My sister did, but, you know, I didn't. Uh, or whether it was just something innate in me because kids do learn at different rates. But I didn't read as a a primary school student. But then suddenly, um, and that was, you know, I was going to some, well, very basic schools, to say the least, in, around uh, Anchorage, Alaska. And then my family moved to Spain. And, well, I was in a Spanish school at first and not speaking any Spanish, so I kind of got away with murder there in not, you know, not studying. And, of course, uh, well, having... I have to say a wonderful time, but but that wasn't too good. Then I, for some reason, and I, I went into an English-speaking school in Spain, mm. and at about that time, and I don't know if it's because you know hormones start pumping or or what it is, mm-hmm. but I really became interested in the arts and painting first, and there were wonderful paintings in in Madrid, mm. and then also in writing, but by then. At 11 or 12, I wasn't reading children's books, but it wasn't such a developed field as it is now. There just wasn't that much available, even if I were interested. But the, but I was interested in adult novels, and um, and I started very slowly reading these and got very interested in in books and literature. And I think from that point, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to be a writer? But I, right. it wasn't something I ever had the confidence to think I could do. Mm. So when you first actually, you know, took your first steps, um, what did you do? Did you just start writing after work one day? Or did you, you know, get inspired through a course? Or how, how did it start? No, well, it's nothing to do with courses. I really didn't study anything to do with writing. Uh but it was just as you described. It was kind of thinking, you know, I should finally actually do something about this. Now, I was at that point. I'd moved to Australia. It was 1974, and I I had a family with young kids, and uh, and a, a job was you know reasonably demanding, but not as demanding as it had been when I was actually working a job and going to university part-time, and, mm. you know, just had no time at all. I had a little bit of time. So I did really just come home from work and lock myself in a room and and uh, for six months, you know, force myself to, re- to write a book, which, you know, I'd had an idea for. And then I spent, oh, I think I spent all up oh, six or eight months writing and rewriting this book. Wow. And then again... Just luckily, um, somebody picked it up for publication. That was the adult novel. But spending six months, um, you know, writing it and then six to eight months rewriting it, that's commitment. What drove you on because you were new to this? Oh, I don't know. Ego. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what drives writers on. Um, Somebody once said that to be a writer, you need arrogance and intelligence. You need enough intelligence. Uh, 
you need enough arrogance to think somebody's going to be interested in writing what you read, and you need enough intelligence to hide the arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Now, you've written three books in your ghost stories series. Now, obviously, you know, being ghost stories, it's important for stories to be credible. How do you make your ghost stories credible to your audience? Well, I have, of course, when you're when you're writing for kids, and kids... I think primarily kids like fantasy. And mm. by fantasy, I don't mean necessarily, you know, other worlds and other planets, but mm. but things which aren't true to life. Uh, and they really crave that. Uh, in fact, one of the things I found, I think, saddest about the business when I went to work at School Magazine and started reading all of these books was there was an, it seemed to me a huge overemphasis on realism and on basically, you know, problems sort of books. Not that those things shouldn't be, but it just seemed to be 90% of everything. And uh, and they weren't fantasy books in general. But that's changed quite a bit. In fact, I think Harry Potter changed that a great deal. Mm. But uh, the uh, at the time, I was writing the first, actually, the first of these ghost books was called The Ghost in the Goggle Box. And once again, I can tell you what inspired that. And that was a story I had read by John Cheever in The New Yorker many years before called The Enormous Radio. And it was about a a husband and wife. This was an adult short story and a very short one. Husband and wife buy an old radio. This is before the days of television. And, um, well, it's a new radio, but it's a big Thing and it's kind of weird. And from the moment they get this, they think there's something strange about it. It's got kind of gives them odd feelings. And when they turn it on, they realize that they're actually listening into the different neighbors' apartments in their apartment building. And at first, everything is kind of fun, like the way eavesdropping can be. And then suddenly, they hear things. That they really didn't want to hear somebody's dying of cancer and you know mm. other things, and they eventually they have the the radio taken away, and it changes basically you have the sense that it's changed their relationship. It's a wonderful story, and it's not unlike other stories where people kind of are privy to things, whether it's a movie like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window or Mm. The sort of thing has been done lots of times. You get kind of sucked into something, and then you get involved in it somehow. Mm. And I had, I thought, what if, you know, you have a boy and a girl who, with their parents, move into a house after their great uncle has died in Sydney. And they're cleaning up the house, and they're going to sell it, and then move back to Armadale, mm. uh, where they live. And the boy's got a broken leg, so he can't help. And there's an old television set, and he starts watching it, and he can see into the neighbors' houses, and all these different stories are kind of developing. And then there's, you know, so you have a kind of plot point where he realizes that a crime has been committed and such. Of course, nobody believes him with this. Now, I actually put a ghost the ghost of his great uncle is actually stuck in the television set, and he's kind of a larrikin. Sort of character, and he's playing tricks on people and also trying to get out of the television set. Mm. Anyway, not to give you the whole plot. Um, so I had a realistic situation 
But the part that wasn't realistic was the ghost, obviously. Well, mm. I don't believe I don't believe in ghosts. Mm. Um, but it, just mentioning the ghost and the ghost stuck in the television set and such, I think was all you need to get the kids in. They want there to be some fantasy element to it. Mm. So I don't think it's, in that sense, I don't think it's difficult at all, at least in a kid's book. Yeah. So you, you've written 75 children's books now. Um, how, first of all, how in the world are you so prolific? And do you want to, you know, go back to what you started with, with, with in like an adult novel and, and write more of those? Or are you happy um, with the niche that you've carved here? Well, I kind of like to go back. <laughs> <laughs> I I have I am working on another adult novel of sorts, but I'm I mean I'm work on a few things at once. Sure. Uh, I w- I always thought that I was going to do both, um, you know, write for adults and write for kids, and I just the writing for kids just took over my life. I mm. just didn't have time. I did after those years at the school magazine. I stopped work there and just decided to throw caution to the wind and and just write. That was 1982, mm-hmm. and uh, it's supported me ever since. So, But I have to say, it's um, nobody finds writing easy. Mm. You do have, you have to hustle. You do have to kind of work hard at it and put out a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, so I really didn't... And the demand for my books was always, you know, my publisher saying, will you write another Selby book, or mm. will you write another Emily Eyefinger book, or, you know... The, for kids' books in general and certain of the series in particular. Mm. And um, so if you were um, writing, can you describe to us your typical writing day? You know, sort of like do you have a routine? Do you get into a certain mood or, or anything like that? No, I look, I don't have a routine. And I'm sure the best way to write and the, the easiest on your nerves is to do to be systematic about it, to have your life organized in such a way that you kind of sit down at nine o'clock in the morning and write for three hours and take a break and then mm. write, you know, like that. And mm-hmm. I have, there have been times when I've done this, um, and there, there are people, uh, Graham Greene used to write 350 words a day, and that was kind of it. Mm. And, you know, what better writer was there, really? I mean, it's obviously worked very mm. well. I mean, he, I think he was very intelligent and perhaps talented if there's such a thing as talent and writing mm. writer but he he was very systematic and very successful from it i am totally undisciplined <laughs> uh, well having said that i i said that to someone and they said you're at 75 books you must have some discipline yes well, it's true i think once i get going on something i do work hard at it and i do i can work very long hours when something is really rolling along. But uh, I always have those crises of confidence, um, you know, when I'm starting something, which, you know, are just agony and, you know, have months of just trying to pick away at things and not liking what you've done and Mm. wondering why you're not still an industrial chemist (laughs) getting a paycheck. (laughs) Have you ever thought of writing scientifically based books or books with some kind of scientific theme? I've been tempted, um, but no, I don't think I. I don't think that's really something for me. And it, uh, I think it would require more research than I'm willing to do as mm. well. 
I, one of the beauties of writing the kind of thing that I do is that it requires very little research. I did the, my adult thriller novel had something to do with cotton growing in, in northern New South Wales. And, and I did have to go to the state library and read all these, you know, cotton growers monthly or whatever, right. you know, magazines and to get a background in it before I did it. And I, I really, I mean, I sometimes researching is fun. I mean, I because I like to read and I like to learn things, but to actually do it with a view to using it somehow, I have to say I didn't enjoy, and uh, which is why it's nice to write fiction and write for kids. Mm-mm. And you've mentioned Selby, your Selby series, and the your book Selby Secret won the Koala Award, and you've become a koala legend. <laughs> yeah, what? I've won a few of those. Yeah. yeah. So it's won um, koala awards many times. So why do you think Selby is so, you know, um, loved by kids? Uh, I'm not absolutely sure. I The background for Selby was that Family Circle magazine wanted a series of stories for kids, and uh, they had to take up just one page of the magazine, which is, which is very tricky. I mm. mean, you get to when things stories get shorter and shorter, it comes a point where it's very difficult to actually write because uh, you can't actually get a beginning, middle, and end. To you know, you can you could do a vignette of some kind the way uh, comic strip characters do, and you know. It, uh, in the newspapers, but but for stories, it was tricky. So I fixed on a dog uh, because I thought kids would immediately associate, uh, have feelings for a pet, mm. a dog or a cat. Mm. I chose a dog, and then I, uh, rather than a boy or a girl, the problem of choosing a boy or a girl for a series of stories like this was you know, if I wrote about a boy, there's a possibility the girls wouldn't be as interested. If I wrote about a girl, the other way around, it could happen. So, mm. and not only that, there are always characters that you don't uh, you don't warm to because you know she's a blonde and I'm not, or he's you know a tough kid and I'm not, or whatever. So you choose a dog, and you've got the kids in immediately. I then decided that in looking at a character, I always say, what, how can I make this character different? And, okay, he can be a talking dog. He knows how to speak. Well, there's lots of talking dogs in kids' books. How can I make him a little bit different? Well, he's a talking dog, but he's keeping it a secret that he knows how to talk. And then thinking up a rationale for that. He lives with his owners, Dr. and Mrs. Trifle, in a small town in Australia somewhere. And I added, kept adding glosses to this. And I wrote these stories... 18 of them. And at the end of that, I really didn't like the character I'd given Selby. I thought I'd made him a bit too harsh. And uh, so I had the luxury, after having written um, all of those stories, to go back over them and rewrite them, something you just don't get when you're writing books Mm. directly. And at this point... um, I knew exactly what I wanted this character to be. I wanted him to be a lovable character and a very loving character. One of the reasons I think he succeeds is, well, the humor, the uh, but the fact that he has this absolutely adoring relationship with his owners, Dr. and Mrs. Trifle. He just adores them. And they adore him, of course. And I think that kind of warmth helps the things, the, the stories. 
Mm. Anyway, I rewrote them, submitted them to HarperCollins, who published the first book, Selby Secret. And then that did well, and they wanted more, and I just kept going with the stories for, well, there's now 15 collections of stories about him and a few spin-offs um, as well, like joke books and things like that. And those by, are by far my most successful books. Mm. Uh, in terms of sales and the kind of prizes they've won and such. So now when you write a book, do you actually write it with the plan for it to be a series? Or, or, you know, have that in the back of your mind at all? No, not necessarily. And when I wrote the... I've written the two books about Bert Piggott and Mm. his family, uh, Piggott Place and Piggott's in Peril. And when I wrote the first one... I may have, I can't remember, I may have had it in mind that if people really liked it, I'd write another one. Um, it didn't do spectacularly well, and so I resisted writing another one for some years and then wrote uh, Piggott's in Peril, the second book in, in the series. Um, and I was actually very pleased with that. In fact, it's if not my favorite, certainly one of my favorite books of, of mine. Uh, but once again, it didn't, you know, do that well that I, you know, decided to jump right in and write another one. And it was also, it had a certain completeness to it. Um, I am still toying with the idea of writing a third ticket book, but I, the first two are for the moment, hopefully for the moment out of print. And this, if I write a third one, you know, hopefully my publisher would bring back the other two and repackage them and you know tart them up a bit yeah it's all that's all part of the you know commercial reality when you're writing these days you need to think of these things too don't you you do you do you don't want it to overpower you so that it actually influences too much what you're writing because then the kind of spontaneity and the the things that really just happen that seem like magic when you're writing the real Mm. writing doesn't happen if you're writing to a formula. Yes. Yeah, sure. And I must say that with the, the Selby stories, the and hopefully the other stories I write, I do spend a lot of time constructing the plots. Uh, it surprises me to hear authors who who can just kind of drift into a story and see where it's going and let it kind of give it its head sort of thing. Mm. Um, I've done that, and sometimes I've managed to get a story out of it, but I think time spent plotting and its agony, nobody likes to do it, Mm. uh, it always pays off. I think it's, you you know, you can then, and I just write these little praises, and I go over and over them, and then I put them away the way you would a Sudoku or something to come back to because you can't do it, (laughs) or a crossword puzzle. And then finally something gels, and I do have kind of a roadmap at that point. And then writing is uh, is a relative pleasure. Mm. And then the rewriting is, you know, kids can't stand the idea when you tell them how many times you rewrite the story. <laughs> oh, groan. Cause, but that is, the older I get, the more I enjoy the polishing and making everything just fit neatly into place. But I think that's paid off, and especially with the Selby stories, where you kind of look like you're going for a certain ending and there's a twist at the end. Mm-mm. And I think that, um, I think you said the key word, you know, something gels at some point, and I guess for different writers, different writing approaches um, need to be tried out until they work out 
you know, what's going to gel for them because absolutely every author yeah, is different. Yeah. Mm. And I didn't mean to sound to say that, uh, that their way is wrong. Oh, no, it just not at all, yeah. Doesn't, you know, we all have different ways of approaching these, but for me, I really need to get the construction right, and I'm not going to do that by just blundering into a story. Mm. It has happened that I've started off on something and said, let's see where this is going. I've done it. I used to do it quite a bit. But by the time I've finally figured out how things are working out, I've actually thrown away most of what I started with and really wasted a lot of time. Mm. And um, finally, what would your advice be to aspiring writers out there who want to write, you know, just like you, and get published? Oh, I think it takes um, a certain amount of persistence or Mm. dogged determination, I think is the one. Don't be put off by people who, who say that it requires talent. I mean, I'm sure there are people and Dickens and Shakespeare, I'm sure, had a little something extra <laughs> beyond the rest of us. But, you think? Uh, and, but I, yeah, I think so. But uh, I don't. I think really determination is really just what you need. Somebody, somebody said what you need is uh, Zitzfleisch, which is, I don't speak German, but you know the flesh you sit on. You need to, you need to just sit there and, and get something done. And and I think that's I think that's true. You just you have to you not only need dogged determination to force yourself to do something which isn't always pleasurable to do, and from which you may never get a reward, or if you do, it'll be years down the track. Mm. But I think the the business side of it can be soul destroying too. It you know it's just uh, you just can't tell what. And there's nothing worse than working and working on a book and then seeing even getting it published and your expectation is high and then see it very badly published and all, you know, you get your copy back and you just, your heart sinks. You know, Mm. I put all this work into it and look what they've done to my beautiful work. Mm. (laughs) Well, it is a collaborative effort. You know, there Mm. are, especially with kids books, we have illustrators as well. And um, some publishers that have, you know, might have, you know, might push you more than someone else and all that kind of business side. Mm. You have to, most of the time, put that out of your mind or you'd never write anything. Well, hopefully you write enough that it balances out. (laughs) Yeah, it actually does. I mean, I have found that I've written enough and gradually it's succeeded well enough that Mm. uh, publishers, you know, have have been very good to me in recent years. But Mm. I think most of us spend you know, some years in the wilderness. And I would say for a beginning writer, don't expect anything to happen for 10 years. Now, yeah. that's enough to put, if that puts you off, don't do it. Yeah. But uh, if you still want to soldier on, you could get really lucky and uh, find your work takes off and that you can actually make a living from it mm. sooner than that. Great. All right. Well, on that note, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time today, Duncan. You're very welcome, and thank you for asking me all these questions. (laughs) It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars, and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets, and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au. 
or visit me on my personal website, www.valeriekoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O dot com. Thank you for listening.